If you want to experience precognition, do what I call precognitive dream work. And it's very easy, actually. And there's, it's just actually a three-step process. Welcome back. I'm here today with Dr. Eric Wurgo. Uh, can I call you Eric? Sure, <laughs> please. All right, Eric, Eric, welcome. Today, we're going to discuss a topic that keeps coming up over and over again for me, which is uh, ironic, time loops. This book's been out for quite some time. First of all, just could, if you can provide the audience with a brief background of yourself and then explain how PhD in anthropology went on this odyssey to study time loops. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so I got my PhD in anthropology in about 2000 now, over like God, 23 years ago. But I went into science writing. I didn't go into academia. And I think that probably helped my freedom mm -hmm. to explore <laughs> strange realms that academics and professors don't often feel the freedom to explore. So really, the, the backstory of my interest in precognition Really, it comes from a, a UFO encounter, actually. It wasn't mm. a close encounter, but it was a, a sighting in 2009. And until that point, I, I didn't know a lot about the UFO topic. I mean, I wasn't a knee-jerk disbeliever or anything like that. I basically believed in UFOs, but I hadn't done the reading. And so, as one does, when one goes down the UFO rabbit hole, you know, one encounters Jacques Vallée and his work. And... One thing I did have a kind of knee-jerk resistance to was ESP and psychic phenomena. My parents were psychologists. I worked for a psychology organization at that point. And psychologists are like very, very anti-anything parapsychological or ESP-related. You know, they just have a, a, a real resistance to that. And I kind of acquired that resistance over the course mm -hmm. of my education and, and my life. But, you know, here was this very smart, person showing that you can't separate the ESP topic from UFOs and also saying that, hey, this is a real thing. You know, ESP is a real thing, the same way UFOs are. And so it, it got me to do my due diligence, reading the, the evidence in parapsychology, delving into the subject. And yeah, it, I, I realized, okay, there's something here. And mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I had been keeping a dream journal, you know, for decades, but I had never consider the possibility that dreams could be precognitive. On the other hand, I'd had dreams that came true, you know, mm -hmm. in the next day or two. And I just, as I always say, I'd swept them under my metal rug as <laughs> something just not worth considering or coincidences or something. But it got me, my reading, you know, in the vast evidence for precognition got me to look again at my own dreams and my own experiences and i started realizing hey there's something here and the moment you start paying attention to this it starts i won't say manifesting but it starts appearing in your life and i started routinely recording dreams then and paying attention and saying oh my god these dreams are coming true in my life and you know often they're about some mundane thing happening at work or something like that they're not about big disasters or big things in the news generally but i realized, wow, this is a real topic. So I started just doing a lot of research. And at that point, I, I had had a blog and I was writing about UFOs a lot on my blog, but I was also started writing about psychic phenomena, ESP. And 
I really got into the research on precognition. It's like the most interesting, counterintuitive, sexy in a certain way, kind of psychic phenomenon. And it's also the hardest to wrap our heads around. But I, I liked that challenge. But it required a lot of research, really. I mean, I, it required studying not only the history of parapsychological research on the subject, but also the mountains of anecdote, you know, in mm. not only in the ESP literature, but in biographies of writers and, and, and psychoanalysts and stuff like that. And it required, of course, delving into the physics, you know, what are the physics here that could allow this? And it happens that, and this is a big part of my first book, Time Loops, mm -hmm. is there's a number of scientific trends. They're all kind of converging on a plausible explanation for how something like precognition could work. And those trends come from, on the one hand, you have quantum physics and theories, evolving theories to explain the kind of spooky behavior of particles at the smallest scales, you know, in nature. One theory that is gaining traction over the last couple of decades is the idea of retro causation. That is backwards mm -hmm. causation from future towards the past. And that's the kind of thing that you need. You need some sort of physical principle that would allow information from our future to reach us in the present. And, you know, lo and behold, one of the growing interpretations of what's called the quantum measurement problem is that influences propagate in temporal retrograde at the smallest scales in nature. Well, then you also have quantum computing, which is scaling up essentially these tiny micro influences of particles through entanglement. You're entangling a large group of electrons or atoms or whatever, and using them to do computations. But all these teams around the world are finding that you can somehow reverse the sort of temporal sequence of a computation in a quantum computer. So there you have support for this idea that, wait, if you have a quantum computer, you can maybe produce an output before you get the input. You can reverse the temporal sequence of information and the results of that information. Well, you know, guess what organ in the body is regarded by a growing number of of people on the forefront of biology to be a quantum computer okay the brain mm -hmm. so you have new interpretations coming out of quantum physics you have quantum computing you have quantum biology and this sort of emerging field of quantum neurobiology they're all sort of converging i think on this idea that the brain is really a four-dimensional processor of information and that mm -hmm. it's possible that our consciousness right now is responding not only to things, events in our past via learning and memory and so on, but that it's responding to stimuli and events that are ahead of us still. And so uh, a lot of fascinating science right now is converging on an explanation for how our brains could really be precognitive. And it would explain just incredibly common features of our experience that have been rejected by official science right. for three centuries, basically since the Enlightenment. And there's a really kind of good reason they were rejected. Back in, in Isaac Newton's day, any cause that went in reverse okay, was called teleology. All right, That was the word that they used for what we would now call retrocausation. Mm -hmm. And at that time, 
teleology was assumed to be somehow related to God's plan. All right. And the rule in science, the rule in this emerging natural sciences as we now know them, the rule was you had to keep God out of it. You had to, to keep God out of the equations. And so as part of that, anything smacking of teleology was rejected just out of hand. You couldn't let it in because you couldn't let God in. All right. But what physicists are giving us over the past century almost is another way of understanding teleology, essentially, as you know, there's nothing divine about it. It's simply the fact that, in fact, causes go both directions. And for various interesting reasons, we don't perceive that or we have a harder time perceiving it and we have a harder time understanding it. But it's nevertheless, it's there. And you can bet that if it's there in physical reality, that life is going to find a way to capitalize on it. So my personal take on precognition is that we're seeing the remnants really of a very basic life process, a, a very basic way in which certain organic molecules can potentially pre-spawn to events in their future, and that life has built upon these processes, and that that probably will turn out to explain the rise of life out of lifeless matter. I mean, this is one of the great questions in biology. Mm. And I just have a hunch, I mean, I'm not a biologist, but I have a hunch that this is going to turn out to be part of the story. So a lot of people think of precognition as some sort of new superpower that we're evolving toward or some sort of higher consciousness that we're evolving toward. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think that precognition, as we understand and experience it, really reflects some very basic organic processes in our cells and especially in our nervous system. And it's true, you can see evidence of precognition in lower life forms, you know, in animals, in planarian worms. So I think it's going to be something that turns out to be very basic. So that's a long so answer I, to your question about how I got involved in all this. So I think you explained this concept in another interview, but the concept of the human, right? We see ourselves as kind of three-dimensional organisms, but we're really like a four-dimensional worm kind yeah. of wending through time. And all you're literally doing is just what's far into the distance of the future is communicating with us in the present and, you know, us in the past. Have you ever programmed? Are you a programmer at all? No, I'm not. So this is a concept that actually applies to what you're talking about because it helps people understand something that seems very difficult to understand, but there's a sort of function in programming called a recursive function. And what that function does is generally a function will just take inputs and then it would provide an output. Okay. But what a recursive function does is it will call itself. So one of the inputs will be itself. And if your recursive function works correctly, it will be kind of a negative feedback loop where it'll just keep going until it solves the problem. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's a positive feedback loop, as you know, it would just, it would hang your computer and then you mm -hmm. wouldn't. But I think that might be one model that you can look at is maybe that recursive function is you mm -hmm. and you're calling upon your future self. Your future self is providing you with information 
you're providing your future self with feedback until you spin and spin in this loop until you kind of resolve into an answer. Now, in terms of the science that you looked at to kind of get to this theory, I know you looked at quantum mechanics a bit. I think you also looked at some chaos theory. And I want to go to chaos theory in particular before I do that. What other sciences, fields of mathematics did you look at to try? Because this is not, I don't think this covers like one discipline. This is something that's cross-disciplinary in many different ways. Yeah, it's very inter- interdisciplinary. And it's not just science. And you need the tools. Honestly, precognition, you can get at a potential theory or at least a hypothesis for how it works physically through quantum physics, quantum computing, quantum biology, quantum neurobiology, neuroscience, and conventional neuroscience. But you also need the tools of the humanities to understand this because these experiences, when you're talking about human experiences of precognition, these are meaningful experiences and no science does well with meaning. Okay. Meaning is something you need the humanities for, and you need fields like psychoanalysis. So a big portion of my book, Time Loops on psychoanalysis, a lot of people think psychoanalysis has somehow been discredited or whatever, which is just not at all the case. It's sort of been rebranded. A lot of Freud's ideas, his so-called metapsychology, that is to say his theory of the conscious and the unconscious and how they interact. Well, this has sort of been rebranded in neuroscience. Neuroscience has basically adopted a view of the unconscious. They will call it implicit processing. They'll use a lot of different terms for it. But Freud has been nothing but vindicated really over the years. I mean, a lot of his ideas you can kind of throw out, you know, penis envy and things things like that. A lot of the sexual stuff you can kind of bracket. Mm-hmm. But the basic theory, the, the metapsychology, the idea that our consciousness, whatever that is, is embedded in a very big unconscious and that the unconscious works in certain ways, in very predictable ways that can be really studied in a clinical setting. That idea retains all of its force. And I really think that what Freud was doing, he was basically giving us a theory of precognition without knowing it. He personally didn't believe in precognition. His, his, His patients would come to him with precognitive dreams, and he would find a way to reframe them as memory distortion or whatever, which is very typical of psychologist you know throughout it sounds familiar it sounds time. familiar today right yeah sounds very familiar but without knowing it his metapsychology is really a theory of precognition because precognition manifests in all the ways that freud studied the unconscious mind manifests so dreams was his first big breakthrough book the interpretation of dreams well you know dr- dreams are the number one way you and I and most people are going to become aware of precognition in our lives. If we're paying attention, it's in our dreams. But also, you know, his second book was called The Psychopathology of Everyday Life. <laughs> I've often thought of doing a book called The Parapsychopathology of Everyday Life because <laughs> things like slips of the tongue and what we would now call synchronicities. Yeah. I mean, he a lot of the stuff in his book were these, you know, strange coincidences that Carl Jung later called synchronicity and just neurotic symptoms in general are often precognitive of things that are going to happen in our future or things that we're going to think in our future or various kinds of experiences we're going to have or traumas in our future. He was a great theoretician of trauma and how things in our past echo into our present lives and sometimes dominate us. But 
what if some of those traumas are in our future? And there's a lot of evidence that we can be traumatized by something in our future and we can be pre-acting in response to those future traumas. So all of the things that Freud was interested in and studied, I argue are really precognition. And the, the, the fascinating thing about Freud, and I talk about this in both of my books, is that he himself was a precog. I mean, he was having these kinds of what we would now call precognitive experiences his whole life and struggling to try and interpret them and explain them through his own personal lens. But he was kind of a victim of this kind of refusal to accept precognition. For instance, in his most famous dream, that's sort of the centerpiece of the interpretation of dreams, he interpreted it. It was a dream of some doctor friends of his in this big hall in Vienna, and he examines a patient and sees these very specific symptoms inside her mouth and throat. And he interpreted this dream as being about medical malpractice, basically, and about his wishes that he be blameless in some medical malpractice issues that were happening at the time. But fast forward, I think, 20, 28 years, I believe, all the symptoms that appeared in that woman's mouth in his dream were symptoms that appeared in his own mouth when he developed oral cancer. And this oral cancer and this terrible surgeries he had to undergo dominated his life for the last 15 years of his life. So this dream, I mean, was very clearly a premonition of this terrible health crisis happening in his own life. And it's so funny that his core archetype was Oedipus, all right? Oedipus, who's this prince who is raised in another city, doesn't know who his real parents are, and then an oracle tells him he's going to kill his father and marry his mother. And so he flees his what he thinks is his hometown because he wants to avoid this prophecy. And of course, he winds up fulfilling all those things. He kills his father at a crossroads and then marries his mother and becomes king of Thebes and, you know, all this horrible stuff happens as a result. So Freud makes the Oedipus complex sort of central to his thinking that we all harbor these unconscious love for our opposite sex parent and our desire to kill our same sex parent. All right. But he ignored completely the whole prophecy part of it, which, which is the important which, part for him, which is the important part for him. And he became, he essentially lived out the Oedipus story by denying prophecy, denying that dreams were prophetic. And then of course, living out this oral cancer, which, you know, was a result of his cigar smoking. And there's even symbolism in the dream that it was caused by his cigar smoking. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. He lived the Oedipus story by denying prophecy and fulfilling it because by denying it. So Freud is an amazing story, but in general, psychoanalysis is this, you know, incredible lens onto precognitive experiences and how precognition works. So my book, Time Loops, you know, the first section is on the evidence. A few chapters, you know, focused on all the evidence for it. Then the second section is on uh, all the, the physics and biology that and neuroscience that can make sense of it. But then the, the third section is all on, on psychoanalysis and, and relating it to Freud's work, which I think is, is hugely important in understanding how it works. So yeah, you need a lot of fields. You need the sciences, you need the humanities. All right, so I'm going to go completely off script for a second. Why the owl on your shirt? Is there any significance <laughs> to that? Because you my, well, yeah, my now seven-year-old daughter, back when she was like three and four, was like super into owls. And so I bought like tons of t-shirts that had owls on them, which was to entertain her. But I like wearing an owl t-shirt to like paranormal events and 
conferences and stuff because the owl, of course, is its own kind of totem of UFOs and and the paranormal in general. So I often I often I mean, show it's, up it's, show up with an owl on me somehow. <laughs> so are you do you familiar with Chris Bledsoe? I'm you know somewhat familiar. I don't know him. He's been seeing like owls his entire life and, and things like that. But just mm-hmm. long story short, the night before I interviewed him, there were owls like flying all around my house, hooting him. The exact type of owl looks like a great horned owl on your mm-hmm. never seen them around my house before then. Right. I haven't really seen them since, yeah. as far as I know. I yeah. hear them, but right. Well, Mike Cleland, I'm sure you know his work, may may know him. Yep. He's, you know, the great theorist of of the owl and relationship to, <laughs> to all these kinds of events. And the first time I met him was uh, on a walk on the the Rice University campus. We were both uh, mm-hmm. part of the the first uh, Archives of the Impossible conference uh, a year and a half. That's with ago. Jeffrey Kripal, right? Jeffrey Kripal stuff, yeah. So uh, I ran into him. I'd never met him in person. I knew we exchanged a few emails at, at some point. But anyway, it was the first time meeting him. And, you know, so we chatted for a few minutes and then I walked on and literally less than five minutes, it was probably more like two minutes later, there were owls hooting in one of the trees on the rice university campus i believe you know the rice university campus the symbol is the owl and i i imagine it's because that there's a lot of owls in the area but i you know very you know i've heard owls before it's always in the dead of night i've never heard owls in the daytime and i know an owl from you know other birds that sound sometimes are confused with it so i was like yes this was definitely uh, an owl like in the trees like right above me you know not three minutes after having my first encounter with my clown. So <laughs> yeah. And, and, and to add to that, like that happened after I had done an interview with uh, Mike Cleland. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, a few, few weeks prior. Anyway, right. I didn't mean to take us off topic. Okay. So chaos theory, how does that fit into the science of all this? So I'm not an expert on chaos theory. The sort of central idea, I think, in a layperson's understanding of chaos theory is sort of the recursive function, like you were talking about with programming. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that things are self-similar on different scales. And this, that recursiveness, what I will often in my books call the fractal geometry, you know, but, but I'm referring really to this recursive function, shows up again and again in precognitive experiences probably other paranormal experiences as well, but definitely precognitive experiences, that there's a way in which a precognitive experience, we're not just precognizing some future event, somehow that time loop that is set up by that precognition and the fulfillment of that event somehow has a a larger meaning in the, the scope of the biography of the individual. So there's always a recursive function here, and I call it the fractal geometry of prophecy. It's always there, but I couldn't say because I'm not a chaotician, so I can't explain how that works necessarily or how that may work in the brain or whatever. And then just to add, before this interview, I kept thinking about strange attractors. I don't know why, but it just, as soon as I set up an interview, it's like strange attractors, strange attractors, Lawrence. And then I looked it up. It's like also called a Lawrence attractor. Lawrence attractor, right. Yeah, I know you're not a chaotician, but is for high levels, as you can explain, how what does that have to do with time loops? Well, a lot of people, when they try to 
explain these phenomena to themselves. They'll gravitate to the Jungian language of synchronicity. Okay. People say, well, that was a synchronicity. It was a synchronicity, whatever. And they'll, because that's the idiom that people have available to them to help understand these kinds of phenomena. But I try to explain how the, the precognitive framework and the time loops framework makes better sense of it. And it gets back to what we were talking about with, with the, the fractal geometry. Like there's a way in which certain complexes or certain themes in our life kind of attract magnetically, you know, precognitive experiences or magnetize these kinds of time loops. And I think I sort of have that in mind sometimes that those diagrams from the old fractal geometry books of the Lorentz attractor, that somehow we're looping around these core themes. And the reason I, I mentioned Jung is that I think that the sort of the so-called archetypal appearance of many time loop phenomena and the reason that people find a lot of meaning in the Jungian literature and the Jungian tradition is that that appearance of an archetypal kind of dimension to these experiences, I think, has more to do with the fact that certain themes in our lives kind of magnetize precognitive experiences. And it's very easy to then find some sort of mythic reference to those themes, those core themes. And it's why I think the Jungian idiom of archetypes kind of helps a lot of people in understanding these phenomena. It's just sort of the way sort of core themes in our unconscious, as long as we understand our unconscious is really a four dimensional thing. It's something that, that mm -hmm. I, I often call it the long self. It's the way mm -hmm. our entire biography is kind of feeding into our consciousness right now, our conscious experience right now. And there are certain themes that sort of seem to dominate or structure that long self, whether you want to call them archetypes or you want to call them Lawrence attractors or whatever. But those things are, are the things that kind of magnetize our most powerful precognitive experiences. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's sort of how no, it, 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 it So I'm going to, th I'm going to throw out something that may or may not resonate with that. So is this similar to something you mentioned at the very beginning of the interview is like parapsychological phenomena, parapsychology, paranormal phenomena, either UFOs, precognition, remote viewing, any of that stuff. Once you start investigating it, you start seeing more of it. Mm -hmm. And I know there's like a psychological term for like, if you start looking for something, you will find it. But I think it's, it's like a effect. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's like above and beyond the expectation effect. Is that kind of a, a Lorenzian attractor or is that, am I getting kind of? Maybe, maybe. I, I can't answer you definitively, but yeah, I mean, that, right. that's what it sounds like. And it, it, for some people, these kinds of questions become central to who they are and their, and their lives. And so, yeah, it's going to magnetize all kinds of paranormal experiences. And yeah, I like that image, at least of the Lorenz attractor. Yeah, it kind of like sucks you in, right? And then it just... Yeah. yeah. The idiom I actually prefer is, is the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan talked about neurotic symptoms as these kinds of cycles where you're kind of orbiting kind of like a black hole of some powerful gravitational pull. Mm -hmm. And so you're going around and around and around this core that can't be seen, but it, it's structuring everything around it. So I have that image in mind, along with that Lawrence attractor kind of image, the, the idea that we're orbiting, we're circling around this kind of absent center mm -hmm. that's kind of giving structure to our lives and structure and meaning to our lives or meaninglessness, whichever. And 
We can't ever see what that thing is, but it's structuring everything around it. So I think it's kind of the same idea. Yeah, I mean, if you ever look at the chart of what it looks like mathematically, it kind of reminds me of a moth. Yeah. To some extent, yeah. for whatever reason. But I'll right. dur- during the course of the interview, I'll post what well, which is which is interesting. I mean, in terms of the history of the idea of chaos theory and and so on as and and oh yeah, you're right. The core, the the core metaphors, and, yeah. butterfly. Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack <laughs> the story of the moths. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about that, but that's like yeah. a, it's an obvious connection one yeah. one can make, right? What is it like butterfly flapping in Tennessee? Yeah, well, that became the. State, that became the, you know, Beijing actually, the butterfly yeah. flapping its yeah. its wings in Beijing could cause, you know, could cause a, a rainstorm in New York two weeks later this is sort of the central idea. And that, and it was called butterfly effect, you know, because mm-hmm. of that kind of metaphor. Although Lawrence himself wasn't thinking of butterflies, he thought of seagulls, but apparently one of his co-presenters at some meeting, like around 1970 or like mm-hmm. late 60s, early 70s. Right. Said that you know butterflies would make a better metaphor, but the weird thing here is, and this could lead the topic of our second conversation. The funny irony there is that over, I guess, almost two decades before that, Ray Bradbury wrote a very classic science fiction story called. Oh yeah, yeah, I know exactly where you're going with this. What was the name of the story? The the story is A Sound of Thunder, and well, they go about, back in time, and they right. go safari so yeah, hunters go, go back in time yeah. to shoot a T Rex. And they're supposed to stay on this assigned walkway because otherwise they, they they might disturb the past and cause changes in the timeline and so on. Anyway, so they get back to the present and things are subtly different. You know, a, a fascist candidate has been elected president, but they remembered before they left that it was his opponent that won the election. And like words are spelled differently on signs and things like that. And anyway, but they one of the characters he looks at his boot and he's like stepped on a moth, you know. And they realized that, oh my gosh, that little change caused all these ripple effects in history since the Cretaceous period. But the thing is, Lawrence himself, you know, he was thinking in terms of seagulls. So was Ray Bradbury precognized? And there's actually like a a very explicit line early in the story about like, well, why do we have to stay on this walkway? Well, because any, you know, any bent blade of grass, any, you know, killed insect or something like that could have ripple effects in history that, that would add up over time. He's like essentially a statement exactly of the butterfly effect that Lawrence sort of theorized and developed in the late sixties, early seventies. So was Ray Bradbury precognizing the butterfly effect? Unfortunately, we can't tell for sure because we don't know that this colleague of Lawrence who suggested using butterflies rather than seagulls may have read Ray Bradbury's story. So we there's no way of teasing that apart, but it's a fun, fun little irony there <laughs> in any case. So how does this work in real life for somebody? Making use of this is is probably, I think, too far afield right now, but how does this manifest itself? In somebody's personal life, do you have like a example? Yeah, I mean, well, dreams are the easiest. If you want to experience precognition, do what I call precognitive dream work. And it's very easy, actually. And there's it's a, actually a three-step process. First of which, you know, many of your listeners probably already do, which is keep a dream diary, keep a dream journal, mm-hmm. but keep a very detailed dream journal. That is to say, date your dreams. And write down every detail that you can remember of every dream, even the ones that seem like meaningless or like I can just remember this image or whatever. Write it all down. 
Secondly, pre-associate on your dreams. And, you know, people without who have a sort of psychoanalytic bent might already do this, but, you know, just kind of what is the first thing this reminds me of? You know, what's the what's the first random thing that this character in this dream reminds me of or with a situation in this dream? It, often there'll be something that, that calls to mind that's unrelated to the dream, but write that down as well, along with your interpretations. But then set aside your dream journal, you know, just set it aside and then go back to it at the end of the day. Go back to the end of the day and look at the dreams from that morning, but look at the dreams from the previous couple mornings. Nobody has time to like compare every day of their life to every dream in their whole expanding dream journal. But most dreams, if they're precognitive, it's going to be something unfolding over the next few days in their life. So just go back to your dream records at the end of the day and look at the previous few nights' dreams and kind of see what connections you can start to make between your dreams and your daily waking life experiences, obsessions, thoughts, things like that. When you start doing that, I almost guarantee you, you will start to detect examples of precognition in your dreams. And the more you do it, the more you become attuned to your own sort of dream language and the more examples you will produce. Now, Dreams are not by any means the only way to get in touch with your precognition. If you're a meditator, the kinds of spontaneous images and thoughts that arise in meditation, when, you're, when your mind is very placid, spontaneous images sometimes come up, and meditators are often told to ignore those because you're not supposed to get attached to that stuff, but I think that's BS. I mean, write those things down the same way you would write it down in a dream. Often those will correlate to something occurring in your life imminently. It's very striking. It's actually my, currently it's what I prefer to the kind of the dream work, the precognition work that I prefer to do lately is those images arising in meditation. But all the things that Freud talked about as the unconscious, you know, slips of the tongue, just kind of synchronicities, you know, random coincidences, things that we pay attention to your thoughts and then pay attention to random thoughts that you start, you know, some train of thought. And then what happens half hour later, often relates to that random train of thought. Just pay attention is the number one rule, I think, should be the number one rule in life. And it certainly is the number one rule in getting in touch with your precognitive nature. Art and creativity, that's another domain. I guess we're going to talk about that in a separate interview. But creativity and art are you know, hugely rich for precognitive stuff. Now, in your review of the literature, stretching back to you know as far as you can remember, are there any instances of people being able to harness this ability through some sort of technique, quieting the mind, being more deliberate? Have there been any examples of that? Sure. I mean, meditation and one of the words that's like starting to be thrown around a lot in the UFO literature is the protocols. Diantha Sulko will talk about protocols that, that oh, yeah. some of her experiences are experiences like tim, tim taylor and tim taylor which essentially is just paying attention it's being meditation mindfulness if you have time and are able to which most people don't unfortunately but if you have time to like lay in bed in the morning and not just rise out of bed immediately and take care of business if you have time to sort of lay in bed engage that kind of hypnopompic state hypnagogia and hypnopompia 
are the, the images, the dreamlike scenes that arise on the way to sleep, that's hypnagogia, and then on the way out of sleep, it's hypnopompia. But when you're sort of drowsing in bed, kind of he keep hitting the snooze button and having little dreams there, those are super, super rich for mm. precognition and for creativity. So, you know, writing all this stuff down, just paying attention and writing down things that you wouldn't think to write down is how you really get evidence in your own life that this is real. All right. Any last words for the audience in terms of how they can make use of this or make sense of it? Yeah. Well, just what I just said, pay attention, pay attention and write things down, record, pay attention and record. There's no way you're ever going to convince yourself of the reality of precognition if you don't have a written record of, say, mm -hmm. a dream. If you have a dream and like later that day, this thing happened from your dream. But if you don't have a written record of that, you know, you're certainly not going to convince anybody else. And you're really ultimately not going to convince yourself because it's like, well, I could be misremembering that dream or whatever. But when you have it, notebook, you have it written down and then you know, a few hours later, this thing happens and like, oh my God, you go back to the dream and it's like, holy shit. That is very compelling. And having those experiences again and again and again, because you've started to keep a dream record or just an experience record of your thoughts arising in meditation or whatever, this is really, really powerful stuff. And that's transformative. I call precognitive dream work and precognitive life work, I call it a gnosis because it's really this, you're getting in touch with what I call the long self, which is the way in which you are right now, you are in touch with your future. And by the same token, right, you right now is in touch with your past in a very direct way. I mean, you've, your thoughts now are influencing your past. <laughs> and that's a mind blowing thought of its own. So just pay attention and write down. All right. Well, thank you very much, Eric. And it was an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to talking with you in the next episode. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new.